This is the 50th New Zealand Christadelphian Bible School. Our third period speaker is Brother John Popel on Growing Closer to God. The subtitle for today is Sheltering Under the Wings of the Lord. This is the first talk in his series. The introductory reading is Ruth chapter 2 verse 4 through to chapter 3 verse 13. Thank you. Brother John Popel, please. Good evening once again. <clears throat> and what a wonderful Bible school this is. I'm having a wonderful time already. It's only the first full day. That's mainly because you're setting such a, an incredibly welcoming, welcoming atmosphere. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. I bring uh, the love of my Ecclesia, who expressly said they wanted to be remembered to you as the San Francisco Peninsula Ecclesia. Ecclesia of somewhat dubious name if you, in its uh, San Fran pen form. Um, but it's lovely to be with you once again. I thank you for that. This is a different series from the morning series. It's a series called Growing Closer to God. And it's actually a, uh, not so much a series, but a sequence of modular studies. Each study is going to look at one character. And it's going to sort of follow them, sort of almost webcam style, to see how they grew closer to God. And then how we, by extension, could follow in their same footsteps. And part of what we'll, we'll end up concluding is that growing closer to God is very much a communal activity, and that's why the title slides are always of brothers and sisters uh, from all around the world in different countries uh, engaged in different activities. It's a wonderful privilege to have a family that we can go and visit on almost any country in the world. So then, let's make a start. Why do we look at the subject growing closer to God? That's, uh, I don't know if you can even make that out, so it's still a little very bright in here. Maybe we kill a couple of the lights. Is that uh, something we can do? That's, can you see who that is? Yes, that's right. It's, that's a movie star, uh, possibly even a movie star of yesterday, I suppose, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Um, I don't follow the movie stars or particularly pay any attention to them, but I happened to catch, by chance, an interview she gave many years ago now, at least 15 years ago, if not, or if not more, and she was talking, uh, and the things she said were fairly predictable, and she was saying, I get a huge amount of fan mail. Well, that's no surprise. She's a beautiful and, and a woman whose images are well distributed in movies and sitcoms and such around the world. And she says, and, and people write to me, specifically mainly men write to me, and they tell me that they're deeply in love with me. And this was the comment that she made. They keep saying that they love me, and want to marry me. But how can they love me when they don't even know who I am? And there's a poignance in that phrase as well, isn't there? There's some, there's some insight there. And so we're not interested in movie stars particularly, but that phrase is something we can certainly borrow in our discipleship life. Why? Well, I, I guess the reason's already obvious, isn't it? I wonder how many times those words are spoken in heaven by Almighty God. God forbid almost that he would say those words about me, but is it possible he could be saying of me? He keeps saying that he loves me. But how can he love me when he doesn't even know who I am? So there is a prerogative there that to love is to know. And therefore, if we desire to love God, or if we assert that we already do, there's going to be some responsibility on us to make sure we actually understand who is this God, I'm following almost directly, aren't I, from the exhortation, not by plan, but by happy circumstance. 
who is God? And we're going to look tonight at who is God and how to grow closer to God, very much from the perspective of that excellent disciple Ruth, and indeed her equally spiritually excellent husband, Boaz. Recognize my methods is what this is called, or sheltering under the wings of the Lord. And the theme is going to be conquering alienation. And that's something we can probably identify with. Think about these two phrases. Is anything in your heart or mind ever been synchronized with either of those two expressions? I feel totally distanced from this strange religion or community. And or, this is not a culture I recognize. And if you weren't uh, uh, sort of brought up in this culture, it might seem very, very strange to have met it uh, from an external perspective. And yet, I can speak with full confidence in saying, even having been brought up in this culture, sometimes I can still find myself in a mindset that's saying, this is very strange to me. I feel curiously alienated, sometimes even when uh, amongst many brethren. And there are periods of our discipleship where we might go through that. And so Ruth is a superb provision from, from the Lord God to have given, uh, for him to have given us her discipleship and her example, because she really was are very alienated from the hope of Israel in her natural circumstances. Let's just remind ourselves why Ruth might be seen very much as an alien. For one thing, she was widowed. And that's at a time and in a culture where your voice in society, your voice in the social circle, came through your father as you were young or through your husband for a female as you were older. Well, Ruth was old enough to be married and had been married, and now she's widowed. There's no social security to fall back on. She's in a very precarious position. As a consequence, she makes that faithful decision because she loves uh, Naomi's God, her mother-in-law's God, to come back to Israel. I will go with you wherever you go, she says. And so at that point, she becomes a foreign immigrant. And that can be a difficult, a very difficult circumstance, particularly in that day and age. Even to this very day, to be a foreign immigrant is often to welcome, uh, to, to welcome yourself to uh, some level of hostility, or at least um, distancing. And, and not only is she a foreign immigrant, but she happens to be a foreign immigrant from Moab, a specifically shunned and distanced uh, ethnicity. So if anyone can feel disenfranchised, if anyone can feel alienated from those enjoying the hope of Israel, Ruth is certainly very well placed to experience that. And I think that's part of why we're given her wonderful example to see how she persevered and how she broke in and came very close to Israel's God and made Israel's God very much her God from a position far further away than probably you or I uh, have experienced. And we're going to focus on that one particular very curious story that we read about, and, and thank you to uh, Brother Evan for reading that for us, that involves some very odd nocturnal activity. What, what exactly is going on here? Let's just recapitulate a couple of the key sentences. Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, very strange, and lay down. In the middle of the night, Boaz was startled. He turns and discovers a woman lying at his feet. What exactly, one wonders, is Ruth doing? And we know, actually, it wasn't something she dreamt up in the moment. One very satisfactory answer is, well, she was following a plan very carefully concocted between herself and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, 
So this was a de very deliberate plan. But what was that plan? And what we're going to see is not only a, a, a romantic interlude between Ruth and Boaz in terms of the relationship they developed, but a romantic uh, relationship developed between two extremely spiritually deep and perceptive disciples. And that's where the real value is going to lie, in seeing how they both see how the God of Israel operates and how they took those operations and absorbed them very directly into their own lives. And there's going to be some very explicit advice for us, boiling down almost to a bumper sticker answer, mainly because it's an evening session and it's hard to sort of stay awake, uh, in terms of how we can uh, grow closer to God in this same way. There's a certain amount of language that needs to be explained here because the language is actually very beautiful. For those of you who appreciate uh, language, I'm not skilled in languages particularly other than English, but I certainly appreciate the beauty of language, uh, the little that I understand. I am your servant Ruth, Ruth says. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. There's a lot going on there in the Hebrew, and none of it shines through in the English. Let's pick out just one word. Um, this quote comes from the NIV, at least the NIV of 1984. Uh, corner of your garment, I've highlighted there in, in gold and underlined. That's four words in that particular English. It's one word in Hebrew, and I've identified it here. And I'm going to pronounce that. In fact, I'm going to deliberately mispronounce it, but just to show uh, a similarity it has with an English word, which is non-coincidental, I'm going to pronounce that canopy. It's, uh, and really, our, our English word canopy uh, has derivations therefrom. It's the canopy. Spread the canopy over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer, is what she says to him. Let's just pick up that same quote in a couple of different versions. I am Ruth thine handmaid, this is the King James, of course, spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid. So he's talking, she's talking about the skirt of the robe that sort of voluminous part that can sway around and cover over things. And the New King James, which I think is what our reading came from, has what sounds like a very different take. I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Now that sounds like the New King James is taking a bit of a liberty there and putting in some sort of euphemism and departing from the literal Hebrew. Not a bit of it. The uh, New King James earns top marks here for seeing not only the euphemism at play, but not departing at all from the literal Hebrew. It turns out the Hebrew for corner of robe, or, or the skirt of the robe, is canopy. It's exactly the same word for the wing of a bird. So in Hebrew, a bird has two canopies. We recognize the word canopy, don't we? We often talk about forests and trees. When they have spreading branches, the trees have a, a canopy over the land over which they stand. Well, in Hebrew, canopy is the wing of a bird. It is also the skirt of the robe. So to say, take, take me under your wing, is actually a, a, an excellent translation there. And we're going to therefore see that there is a direct correlation. It's the same word for corner of garment and wing. That teaches us a few things. So there's one thing. She is asking, quite literally, to be taken under his wing. That is a literally accurate comment. But there's more in the Hebrew than that. Uh, right now, we're just appreciating the beauty of it, and we'll see the spiritual uh, value in just a minute. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Well, actually, here's some more depth to that statement. That isn't just hey, I'm cold, can I share a bit of the blanket? That's not what's being said here, as much as this is a known engagement custom. 
We have that from Ezekiel 16 that we actually looked at this morning in a different context. When I looked at you, says God, and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the canopy over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So this is a big deal. This isn't about keeping warm. This is about a recognized practice. I realize, of course, Ezekiel is many years downstream chronologically from Ruth, but this is a recognized practice in the Hebrew culture, that this is how you claimed a bride. So Ruth is being very direct here. She's saying, marry me, right? She's, she's cutting right to the chase. But she's doing it in a very beautiful way that says, I understand the customs of the Lord God of Israel. I'm not just going to make this crass demand. I'm going to show you that I have researched this and I understand uh, how it is that God himself might take a bride. And again, English is at fault here, but Hebrew has one more beautiful symmetry, or anti-symmetry, I should say here, Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Spread the canopy over me, she says, since you are a kinsman redeemer. And it's uh, not at all obvious in English, but this word uncovered has a relationship with this word kinsman redeemer. Let me just show you what out. An attractive symmetry is played out in the Hebrew text. Those are the words. The Hebrew for uncovered is galah, but the Hebrew for kinsman redeemer is ga'al. So they are actually phonetically opposites. She's saying, I have galah so that you can ga'al. So again, just in, attract in attraction at least, she's playing a, a good game in a language which isn't originally hers. We can think by extension of just the little children's game of peekaboo. Uncover, galah, recover, ga'al. So a kinsman redeemer is actually seen as a recoverer. In, in, in every sense of the English word. So I will you gala, so that you can me ga'al. So she's playing on many different levels here, etymological levels and also spiritual levels, showing her understanding of how the God of Israel works. And, and there's more than just wordplay. This isn't just some sort of university study. She's provoking the sense of empathy. She's saying, if I uncover you, guess what? Your feet are going to get cold you're not going to be a in a pleasant situation entirely. That's the situation that I'm in. I'm entirely uncovered. I have no social protection. I am lying at your feet without any covering. You will probably wake up in due course because your feet are cold, just because part of you is uncovered. And so she's provoking in Boaz this sense of empathy, which any true disciple will have. When I see someone uncovered, the true disciple will say, I myself experience part of that uncovering. This comes from God himself. God hears the groaning of the Israelites under oppression, and he remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God is empathetic. When his people are in pain, God feels their pain. Ruth knows that. Ruth has realized that. Ruth has understood the oral history of coming out of Egypt, and she's enacting part of that in her concern in her situation with Boaz. And we should be the same way. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up into the present time. Not only so, 
but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the more that we report to, to God in prayer, I am galah, I am uncovered and exposed. We're left in these mortal bodies that are simply falling apart as we watch and we decay. God will hear our pain and say, yes, I am sending the kinsman redeemer. I am sending your coverer. In due course and at the right time, your coverer will come. So let's increase in those prayers to the Lord God, as Ruth did, essentially to Boaz, knowing exactly how the mind of the Lord God himself is operating. In fact, Ruth is being cleverer than that, and you can see there's been planning afoot and discussion with Naomi. Ruth is actually responding to a comment of Boaz months earlier, at the earlier harvest. And we read about it. I'll just pop the quote up again so we can see it. Boaz says to Ruth, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, Marlon. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now again, if you're just reading the English Bible, it's not obvious in English that this word wings is going to be the identical Hebrew word to what Ruth asks Boaz to put over her, the corner of the robe. It's the same word. So Boaz has said to Ruth, I know that you've come here to shelter under the wings of my God. This is actually the start of that conversation. And it's the second half of the conversation that happens months later in, uh, in the, the granary. So Boaz says, you've come to take shelter under the wings of my God. Is that just a pretty phrase? Is that just nice poetry? What pair of wings do we suppose Boaz was referencing? Relatively straightforward question. What do we think? Yeah. It's quite possible, quite probable, that Boaz has actually seen these wings uh, as the ark is carried around. The ark was adorned with many things, including, primarily, two cherubim whose wings stretched out across the surface of the ark and touched. So, now here's the key question then, of course. There we are. And you shall make two cherubim of gold at the two ends of the mercy seat, and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. This is relevant. Why? Because it's not just like, oh, there's a little space you can kind of curl up in, if you're small enough. This is saying this is a very special place. Underneath the wings of the cherubim is the localized presence of the mercy of God. Now, to some extent that's metaphorical, because God is everywhere, and God's mercy operates everywhere. Nevertheless, it's quite clear, just as with a magnetic field, a magnetic field can be all across the room, it can still be strongest at a highly, focalized, a highly focal point. And this is how God describes himself. He says, I'm everywhere, but I exist at concentrated focal points, as and where I choose. And I choose to manifest myself at my most concentrated, in terms of my mercy, beneath the wings of the cherubim. If you're beneath my wings, you are receiving the most focal intensity of my mercy. Boaz knows this. Boaz is a highly spiritual man. This is doubtless what is driving Boaz's comments when he says to Ruth, you are a very godly woman. You have clearly come here 
to shelter under the wings of my God, to receive the maximum extent of his mercy. And Ruth understands what Boaz has said. And so she's replying to him by what she does on that night. Let's make sure we're not just getting ahead of ourselves. The wings indicated the focal point of God's mercy. That's not quite correct. The space beneath the wings indicated the focal point of God's mercy. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz replies to Ruth. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the young men, whether rich or poor. Now, some of the grammar here is, is poor, in my opinion, in the English. This last clause, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, this is not the greater kindness. When you look at the grammatical construction of the Hebrew, this is the first kindness. Boaz says, you've done me two kindnesses. The first one is you didn't say, ah, he's too old, I want, I want a young man like me who's, who's young and strong and youthful as I am. He says, you have not run after the younger man, whether rich or poor. That was the first kindness. He says, what you have done now is a greater kindness than that. So the first kindness was Ruth not favoring the younger men or men of her own age. What is the greater kindness that she's done? What kindness has she done to Boaz? And when we can answer that question, and we'll address it directly, then we have the true spiritual power of this incredibly clever spiritual and romantic interplay. Let me paraphrase. Booth, Boaz has said to Ruth at the barley harvest, you've come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And then when Ruth uncovers his feet and lies down and says, take me under your wing, she is saying, implying, I can find refuge, this same refuge, beneath your wings, Boaz. So what is she actually saying? He's saying, absolutely, she is saying to Boaz, you've recommended this wonderfully merciful God. I see that merciful God in you. What an amazing statement. And Boaz is sufficiently spiritually deep as Ruth. He understands what she said. And that's why he says, this is amazing. This is a greater kindness that you have done me now than you did before in simply not going after the men of your own age. You have said you can see the God of Israel in me. When I told you you came to shelter under his wings, you turn around and said, that's pretty much the same as being under your wings. What a beautiful interplay and how subtly done and how powerful is all that scene. And unfortunately, given that we read it in English, we can miss that. But in the Hebrew, it's a little bit more obvious. Ruth implies that Boaz reflects the image of God, that he too, Boaz as well as God, is a coverer, is a ga'al, the one who covers and provides shelter beneath uh, his canopy. So I, I find that when I first kind of dug that out of those chapters, there was a, a tingle went down my spine. I thought, what an amazing interplay. It's almost like a, a sort of a, a sword fight, but it's not a sword fight with intent of malice. That's actually a terrible example now that I think about it. <laughs> but it's, it's an interplay between the two that's absolutely magnificent and wonderful in its, uh, in its spiritual power. This is the second kindness, the greater kindness. 
Ruth saying, I see your God reflected in you. And as a consequence, Boaz accepts Ruth's subtle marriage invitation. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses. There's something important lying in there, and it's not some clever academic trick in the Hebrew. This is the point we mustn't miss. Boaz essentially resurrects Marlon. Now, Boaz is only human, so he can't resurrect him as God might, but he says, this man has died and his name is expunged from the records. I can't resurrect his body, but I can at least resurrect his name. I can give him a continuing life that he otherwise wouldn't have. As much as I can, says Boaz, I am trying to be Jesus of Nazareth, long before Jesus has come along, the one who gives life where life has lost. And here's the point that I like to identify. Growing closer to God has tangible results. This isn't just an academic romantic interplay that could be done by email. He married the widow. He provided shelter in very real, tangible, cost-effective terms. He gave her a home. He gave her food. He gave her shelter. He even, to the best of his limited ability, resurrected the name of her former dead husband. If we want to grow closer to God, this isn't just an academic exercise. It involves real actions that change people's lives. And I think that's one of the key points that derives from the story of Ruth and of Boaz. Time passes. And in a way, Ruth passes from the story, and in a way, she sticks right around. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, we are reminded. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So Ruth is therefore, let's get this right, great-grandmother to King David. Now, I don't know how many of you knew your great-grandparents, but we are all products of the 20th and 21st century. And given socioeconomic cultures that we have, generally our generational overlap is about two. That's a very nerdy way of saying something that should be said simpler. You probably did know your grandparents, you probably didn't know your great-grandparents. There'll, there'll be exceptions either side, I realize that. But that's, that's our common Western civilization generational overlap, two, two sequences. Looking back at the ages of giving birth and the ages of life length, it is almost certain that King David knew Ruth, that King David would have sat on Ruth's lap, so to speak, in, in a very real sense, that they would have overlapped. It's highly unlikely that he didn't know her. So Ruth was a part of the life of David. Is there any evidence of that? Oh, there's, there's some massive evidence of that, isn't there? Think about that wonderful story. Imagine that story between Boaz and Ruth was the story of your great-grandparents. Wouldn't that be a wonderful legacy to be able to just reflect upon? Particularly if your great-grandmother has herself told you the story on her knee. Do you notice that there's a phrase that only one man in the whole Old Testament ever uses and he keeps using it in his Psalms? You've seen it? Keep me as the apple of your eye, writes David. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. This is David's phrase. 
There are seven psalms which are written with this phrase. None of them from Asaph. None of them from the sons of Korah. They all come from the same source. It's a man who has a strong affinity with this beautiful clause. How priceless is your unfailing love, says David. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. You can tell that Ruth has done what the law instructed her to do and has impressed upon her children, indeed her grandchildren, indeed her great-grandchildren, and what a great-great-grandchild he was, the lessons that she'd learned from the God of Israel. I long to dwell in your tent forever, says David, and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. It's his phrase. You won't find it on the lips of anybody else. David loves this personal family metaphor. He uses it in seven psalms. And such was the instruction from the law. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. There's a way to grow closer to God. Impress the wonderful things you know about your father on the hearts. Psalm 57. So as he's running from Saul and hiding in that cave, he says, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for, you in, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. And the disaster, a very real and genuine disaster, is his life is being hunted down by the king. And then you have that very curious situation where Saul comes into the cave and is tired and, and is taking some form of rest, and I'm assuming he's napping, different suggestions apply, that he's taking a nap, and David sneaks up, and he wants, to, he, he wants to show Saul, look, I could have killed you, but I spared your life. And so he says, I know what I'll do. If I get a bit of his clothing, that'll kind of prove it, which is a good plan. So David creeps up unnoticed and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken. I've always found that very puzzling. He always knew what he was going to do, acquire a piece of clothing to prove to Saul, I could have killed you and I spared you. And he cuts off, well, you'll never guess what that word is, of course. You've already guessed. It's the canopy. It's the wing. He clipped Saul's wings. And so he was conscience-stricken because what he'd taken was the canopy of the robe. And in physical terms, who cares? It's just a piece of clothing. But this is his favorite personal family metaphor embedded in the life of his great-grandmother with this wonderful spiritual connection she made with Boaz. And that's precisely what he's violated. He's amputated Saul's wings, the very symbol, only a symbol, of Saul's ability to reflect God. If Saul wants to spread his wing over someone, his wing, at least in the clothing sense, has been cut off. And I have no doubt whatsoever anymore that that is why David is cut to the heart, when he realizes what he's taken, the canopy. Don't deprive others of a chance to show mercy is essentially the spiritual equivalent of what's coming out of that very strange choreographed event. And I find that a wonderful solution to what has always otherwise been an extremely puzzling detail in the Bible. But there's another man who uses that phrase. David is the only man in the Old Testament, but there's one more. He too is a son of David. He is a son, if you like, of Ruth. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Even to those who tried to kill him successfully in the end and against whom he railed in this very chapter, ultimately his heart was still saying, but I just wanted to spread my canopies over you and take you under my wings. It was the greatest son of David that uttered these words. And not only that, but I'd like to show you one more strange little mystery or innocuous detail that I believe this same logic helps solve. Here's a detail that we seemingly never needed to know. Look at this. Jesus' garment was seamless. We're at the time of the crucifixion, I should say, excuse me woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, said the soldiers one to another. Let's cast lots to decide who will get it. Why did they say that? Why is that recorded for us thousands of years later? Partly, I guess, because to show us uh, the, the, uh, the synergy between Old Testament and New, that this passage in John fulfills the psalmist's words of long ago, David's words from long ago, but what else does that tell you? Jesus had a robe and nobody ever cut the wings off. Jesus never lost the ability to show mercy, even in his death. And how fitting is that? Because in his death, he actually showed a greater mercy and provided a greater mercy than he'd even provided in his life to date. Jesus' wings were never amputated. His ability to grant the mercy of the Father that he knew and loved was maintained, even, arguably amplified, even in his death. And that's held up even in this very curious symbol that for some reason God said, you need to know that Jesus' garment never had the wings chopped off. Otherwise, a meaningless detail to do with clothing, but actually a powerful lesson to do with the power of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord God alone led Israel. I like this verb here, hovers, because it speaks about how God protects his young. It talks about he's got them under his spread out wings, and the wings themselves hover and vibrate, almost like a, a worried parent who's concerned and or excited about the wonderful thing that is before him, the Father. And where have we first seen that same verb? We know, don't we? Right at the start of creation. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, that same word. His wings were spread out right from the start of creation over the whole world as he says, look what I have made. Even I tremble with anticipation at what I have done and what I have wrought. There's the work of the ultimate parent. So this, this metaphor is as old as creation itself. It's in the very first two verses of our Bible. And where can it take us? 
It can take us to a quote that uh, was used very, very beautifully yesterday in our exhortation. And it will actually allow us to perform a strange translation. Uh, and if you haven't heard this verse before, I'd be astonished. But I still hope to provide a translation just on what we've said that you may not have heard before. See what you think of it. These are the verses, very well known. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. They will soar on their own wings like eagles. So one can see in these verses, given everything we've taken right from the covering of Ruth all the way down, by metaphor, if we spread our wings, we can learn to fly and ascend to heaven in metaphor. We're not going to heaven. But in metaphor, that means this is how we grow closer to God. Why? Because God is in heaven. And if we actually become creatures that can fly, why then we, in that same metaphor, just in that metaphorical picture, we grow closer to God. Okay, fine, that's all metaphor. What do I have to do to make that happen? I can flap my arms all day, I'm not going anywhere. So to translate that, according to what we've, what we've studied already, we ascend to heaven, we grow closer to God, that's fair, i.e. learn to fly, i.e. develop his character because he's the one who's had his wings spread out over us right since the creation of time. We ascend to heaven, learn to fly, by spreading our wings. We grow closer to God, i.e. develop his character, by spreading our wings, which is by our provision of mercy. You want to grow closer to God? Increase in mercy. Isaiah 40 is where it says that. It's very hidden, of course. That's the process of spreading our wings by which we learn to soar on wings like eagles as God himself did and does. And that then is our conclusion. Ruth, as Boaz, recognizes that beautiful pattern of God, the sheltering wings. Their different cultures are overcome by the commonality that they see in knowing God. How can they say that they know me when they don't even know who I am? Ruth and Boaz found out about God, and that's what they saw. Ruth imprints her experiences with God on her children. Her legacy even educates the man you might wrongly think required no education. He was so spiritual. Perhaps that's merely that's where he came from. King David, the man after God's own heart, her great-grandson. And the abstract literary beauty of the sheltering wings actually has a concrete translation. We grow closer to God by providing mercy. The more times we show mercy, the more times we get closer to God. How do I grow closer to God? Ruth says, you need to spread your wings, and then, then you will fly.